Yeah, that's blood and everything's fine though. Yeah. So Psalm 133 is our text for this morning. And the sermon title is The Blessings of Christian Unity. The Blessings of Christian Unity. And we're going through a, a series of psalms if you're here with us uh, for the first time this morning. And uh, this is one of the last psalms in the series. We've got one more to do. And uh, so next week will be the last one. So let's read through Psalm 133 together. A Song of Ascents of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Well, this morning I wanted to uh, open up with an illustration of one of the important truths that I think we're going to see in this text this morning. And uh, I was thinking about how I, I recently started a new job and I work at a school that trains inspectors for homes and, and industrial buildings. And, and they check out things like fire, safety. They look at plumbing and electrical work and woodwork and all those kinds of things that go into a building. And every Friday morning we have a training session that every, everybody has to sit in and we watch uh, slides and we talk about things that they see in buildings. And one of the things that really surprised me is uh, these photos of wooden decks that we see. And did you know that if you have a wooden deck on a house and you don't do anything to it to maintain it, in only eight short years, that deck will become very dangerous. In only eight years, if you don't maintain the deck, it will become dangerous. And I started to think about how that's a picture kind of of what happens in the church. It's easy to neglect the work of Christian unity. It's easy to set that the work of maintaining Christian unity aside and neglect it. And after a while, problems start to arise. But in this text, we're going to see the blessings of Christian unity. We're going to see some beautiful pictures of Christian unity and how God is drawing us together to worship him together. God is calling us to pursue unity together because of the great blessings in worshiping God. So as we go through Psalm 133 together this morning, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through this text and then I'm going to connect it to several New Testament passages. And right here in the beginning, we see that this is a song of ascents of David. And we've been talking a lot about these psalm of ascents, and I just want to open up by reminding us that this is part of God's picture of his grace. That God is calling his people to worship him. In fact, he commands his people to celebrate. As we go through the Old Testament, one of the most amazing things, if you think about, is that God 
demands that his people celebrate him. God calls his people and demands that you have a party because of what I have done. Because of his grace. Unity displays God's grace. And when we look at the preface, this line, a song of ascents of David, and then we look at verse 1 and see that David is uh, describing something about brothers dwelling together. Well, we, it, we don't know specifically what the original context was, but when you put these two things together, this idea of dwelling and worship, there's a good chance that this was for the Feast of Tabernacles. So the Feast of Tabernacles was an event that Israel was supposed to do to celebrate God's grace. So in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, you don't have to turn there, I'll just give you a short quotation. Leviticus 23 says, You are to live in a tent for seven days to have a celebration that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths or tents when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. So the story to this is that God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. Because of God's great love and his mercy and his grace, he took Israel out of Egypt by his mighty hand, by his strong arm, and he led them out of Egypt. They went through the river, they went through the sea, and they escaped from the uh, army of the Egyptians, from the army of Pharaoh. And when they got through the water on the other side was nothing but desert. And God had promised that he was going to take them to the land of promise, Canaan, the promised land. But they all didn't get there. God had to teach them a lot of lessons. And one of the lessons that he taught them was to depend on his grace. He taught Israel to depend on him for water that flowed from a rock. To depend on him for food, for daily manna. He taught them to depend on him for their very lives. And one of the ways that he did that was through having them live in tents, in booths. And God wanted his people to remember that. So he said, I want you to have a feast, a celebration, an ongoing a uh, regular event where you go and live in a tent for a week and experience what it's like to live in that tent. And out of that experience, you're supposed to remember what, uh, what an amazing thing that God did by bringing you out of the land of Egypt, by redeeming you, by purchasing you from slavery. And it was an amazing celebration where they made, a, they made a tent, a cloth tent. They decorated it with fruits and, and leaves. It was a celebration of living and dependence on God's grace before they came into the promised land. And so that's probably what's going on here. As we get into this text, it really makes sense. This is a song of ascents of David... And notice he looks in verse 1, perhaps over all these tents. You can just imagine this in your mind. 
Here's David looking over all these tents with all of God's people who have come together in unity to worship his grace and his work of redemption in their lives. And he looks over it and he sees a glimpse of the kingdom of God. You could just imagine the scene. And, he, and David sees in all those tents, in all those people, a sliver of what God had promised that he would do through David's son. That David's son would be on the throne forever. We see it, and it's suggested in this text, this wonderful picture of celebrating God's grace. And that's what we're doing here this morning. The gospel is good news because you and I, regardless of what we have done, can be saved from our sins. You and I are under the wrath of God apart from Christ. We are under the just judgment of a righteous and holy God who demands perfect satisfaction for sins. You and I live without Christ under God's judgment and under his wrath. And we are all enslaved to sin apart from Christ. And what the good news offers us is freedom. The good news offers us eternal life if you will simply believe. And that's why we are all here today. We're doing the same thing that Israel did when they came together to live in a tent for a week. To celebrate God's act of redemption. We're celebrating the ultimate act of redemption, the cross. We're celebrating that one event where Jesus died on a cross for all of our sins so that we can be free. And know for certain that our sins have been taken care of because of the blood of Christ. That's what we're here to celebrate together in unity as one body. And so as we get into this psalm a little more, God called Israel to come and worship together. And God is calling you to participate in what we're doing here. He's calling you to simply trust in Christ. He's calling you to have faith in him and to celebrate his wondrous love that rescues sinners no matter what you've done. That's the amazing thing about God's grace. God's grace and his forgiveness is not dependent on who you are. It's not dependent on how educated you are. It's not dependent on where you live. It's not dependent on what family you're from. It's not dependent on all the things that count in this world toward being something. None of that stuff matters before God. What matters is faith. Trust in Christ and he will freely forgive your sins. That's what the cross has done. And people who truly get that grace will want to celebrate it. They will want to respond to it. 
So as we get into verse 1, we see that unity displays God's wonder. And, and in verse 3, there's three actions that we see. Look at unity. The first word here in the, the psalm is, <clears throat> Behold. Look. Look at this unity. Just look at it. It's amazing. Just like David prayed this morning. You see people in church that really have no business being together. You see in church people coming together that if it wasn't for the grace of God, they would have nothing to do with each other. They wouldn't hang out. They probably wouldn't go to each other's homes. They probably wouldn't have dinner together. You wouldn't see them here. You wouldn't see them come together if it weren't for the grace of God. And so when we see the unity of God's people, look at this. Behold. How good and pleasant it is. That's the second action I see. The first action is look at it. The second action is love it. Look at it and treasure it because of how good. And in the Hebrew it's how good and how pleasant it is. God really values Christian unity. He really values his people coming together to worship him. So he says, come and look at it. See this. It's good. Look at it and love it. It is pleasant when brothers dwell in unity. And there's a third one. Live it out. I started thinking about when brothers and sisters live together in unity. And I started thinking about <clears throat> my dad threatening to pull us over in, his car, in the car when we were kids if we weren't living in unity. The threat was at any moment, at any time, no matter where we were, he would pull the car over and discipline us if we weren't getting along in the back seat. When brothers and sisters don't get along, there's something intrinsically wrong about that. Why? Because children come from the same source. And they should be obedient to their parent or parents. They should be dwelling in unity. And so it's an amazing thing when they do, and it's a testimony to God's grace. Brothers live together, but because of sin, there's tribe versus tribe. There's poor versus rich. There's little groups that don't get along with other people. There's cliques in the church. There's division, there's fighting, there's disunity in the body because of sin. And it's destroying the picture 
of unity that we are all God's children. It's destroying the picture of worship when we all come together under God. And so God desires us to be unified. James asks, what's the causes of divisions in the body of Christ? And in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The evil pleasures and temptations and the, the things that you're treasuring in your heart spill out eventually, and if they're evil, they will destroy unity in the body. This is what the Gospel of John says when it comes to the value of Christian unity. This is how people will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. When you live in love for one another in the body, it will be something to behold. It will be an apologetic it will be a defense of the faith because people will see that and think there's something going on there. These people, there's something strange about them. They're not the same, but they all get along. They love each other. They're worshiping God together. They're loving one another in ways that you would never see happen. There's something otherworldly about this. This is how people will know because they'll look at it, behold the unity of God's people. And God will work through that in the lives of people who doubt his grace. So the unity of the body is important for the gospel. It's important for how God is at work in the world, setting his people on display. Showing people the transform transformation. That his love does in the heart. The possibilities of loving one another are shown off by God in the church when we have unity together. Look at unity. Love unity and live it out. Worship in unity reflects the reality that God has brought about right now. It's a small picture of what's going to happen later. It's rehearsal for heaven. It's rehearsal for when the new Jerusalem comes down to the new earth. Look around you right now because this is a small picture of it. Right now. And it's so important to what God is doing. Unity displays God's wonder. Verse 2. It is like the precious oil on the head. <clears throat> running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. What we see in verse 2 is that unity displays God's spirit, his Holy Spirit. 
The oil was used throughout the Old Testament to symbolize the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, notice verse 2, because it's kind of confusing, but just read it slowly, and you'll start to get the imagery. This unity is like the precious oil. Now, on the head, visualize this, down the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down the collar of his robes. There's this repetition of the idea of something moving down, covering the whole body. Something precious that symbolizes the Holy Spirit is all over the, the head, the beard, and the robes of Aaron. And it's a picture of the Holy Spirit in abundance. It's running down from top to bottom. Now, I want to walk you through three steps. First, I want to talk about Aaron. Why did David pick Aaron? Well, the reason is that Aaron was a priest. Aaron was the priest in Israel. He was the spokesman who worked with Moses, you could say. And from Aaron came all the priests in Israel. And one of the things that Aaron did was have a ministry of unity as a priest. He had a ministry of unity as a priest. That's why we read from Exodus chapter 28. Let me turn to Exodus chapter 28 quickly. In Exodus chapter 28, God gave Aaron a pattern for a breastplate that Aaron would wear on him. And what's amazing is that Aaron wore this breastplate that had all of the names of Israel on it. Verse 21, there shall be 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. Why did he have that? Because Aaron, as a priest, represented all of the people before God. And Aaron represented them in their unity. He had a priestly ministry that represented all of God's people. So I want you to get that because of this idea that as a priest, the thing that a priest does is serve God for the unity of the people. He serves God for the unity of the people. Now watch what happens as we look at Jesus' ministry of unity. So turn <clears throat> to John 17. This is called Jesus' high priestly prayer. We're only going to look at a piece of it. In John 17... Verse 20, this is what Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. For this reason, watch, verse 21, that they all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, 
that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. One of the things that Jesus does as a priest in his high priestly prayer is pray that all of God's people would be one. That's what he's concerned about. Why? Because unity in the church, unity in God's people reflects the reality of who he is. And, just as we saw before, that the world may believe that you have sent me. The unity in the body is, is specifically about how God is demonstrating his work to the world. So that people will know that the Father has sent his Son. So we see Aaron's ministry of unity. He represented all the people before God. We see Jesus' ministry of unity. He represented all the people before God. What about your ministry of unity? Well, let's look at Ephesians chapter 4, which we read this morning. Ephesians chapter 4. <clears throat> Paul, writing from prison in Ephesians chapter 4, says this, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, eager to do this, to maintain the unity. There it is. There's that unity that requires work. It requires us to be aware of the need to maintain the unity. And this unity is, just like we see in Psalm 133, a unity of the Spirit. The unity that we have together is not because of anything that we have in us. We don't have the power to love each other like we ought to. And when we do love each other and have unity in the body, it is because of the presence of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why? Because, verse 4, there is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Unity in the body is incredibly important because it's a representation of who God is. It's a picture of the fact that there is one Lord. There is one faith. There's one baptism. There's all these truths that are bound up in our lives, loving each other, living together in Christian unity in the church. We have to maintain unity. And now I want to talk about a practical side to this unity. How do we do that? How does that work out, especially when it comes to Christian doctrine. Well, what I'm going to do is, and you could write this down if you're taking notes, we should maintain unity by using three things. One, 
the essentials of the faith, distinctives of the faith, and preferences. Three things, fundamentals or essentials, distinctives, and preferences. So when we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, here's an important point I want to highlight. For I delivered to you as of first importance. What Paul does is in this chapter is he highlights things that are of first importance. These are the essentials of the faith, if you will. These are the fundamentals of the faith. And he says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and so on. What I want to state is that essentials are worth fighting for. Essentials and fundamentals of the faith are worth fighting for. Like in the book of Jude, it talks about contending fighting for the faith once delivered for the saints. So what I'm starting to do is build a pyramid. And at the top of this pyramid are the essentials. Those are the fundamentals of the faith. In the second row, the second part, the middle part of the pyramid are those distinctives. And at the bottom are preferences. And what I'm about to do is walk through a practical way to maintain Christian unity by placing things in each section. By placing things in each section. So when we look at what Paul says are things of first importance. The doctrine of Christ goes in the first part. The doctrine of Scripture goes into the first part. Those are all essentials of the faith. They're fundamentals that if you don't, if you give those up, the church turns into a country club. And some of you know what I'm talking about. Where people just hang out and maybe work at a food pantry every now and then. If you give those up, the unity that you have isn't in Christ. It's not in the gospel. The unity that the church has must be rooted in these fundamentals of the faith. In these essential things. And they're worth fighting for. When you look at the book of Galatians, Paul does some name calling. When people give up the gospel, he, he's willing to say some really strong things. Because those people in Galatia were losing the gospel. They were losing the essentials of the faith. Now, in the second section, we have those things that are not of first importance, they're of second importance. So Pastor Phil regularly uh, each year goes to a conference called uh, Together for the Gospel. And at that conference, they have a, a, a major Presbyterian minister come, and a Baptist minister come, and a charismatic minister, and they all share the same stage. 
What they're doing is saying, we disagree about secondary things, like baptism. But because we hold to the same essentials and fundamentals of the faith, we can share the platform. We have togetherness in the gospel as brothers and sisters, but those differences that we have are of significant importance in this second section. They're significant enough to say, after the Together for the God conference, we're not all going back to the same church. We've really disagreed about significant things like baptism. And so we've decided to love each other and call each other brothers, but to acknowledge we have doctrinal differences that give us enough reason to say, our fellowship is going to believe this about things like baptism. And, and the other group, the Presbyterians, might say, you know what, we, we want to baptize babies. And the Baptists say, well, we don't. And they go their separate ways. And somebody's wrong, but it's important to locate it in, a, in the second level of distinctives worth separating for. It's sad, but it's, that's what denominations and different Christian groups are about. In heaven, those will not be there. But today, it's still important for us to locate the differences that we have with each other in these three sections. Now, in Romans 14.1, we see the third section at work. There's disagreement in the first century church about worship. They're disagreeing about what day of the week to worship on. As Jews and Gentiles get together, they're disagreeing about food. They're disagreeing about certain things, and this is what Paul says. As for the one who is weak in faith, this is Romans chapter 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. If you have your own preference about how church should be run, and it's not a distinctive, it's not an essential of the faith. It doesn't fall into the first category, it doesn't fall into the second category. It's something about your personal preference, and you firmly believe that you should worship on Saturday. That's fine. Welcome people who disagree with you about third level issues, but not to quarrel. Don't fight over these things. Don't let these things destroy the unity of the faith. Don't let your personal preferences destroy the unity in the local body. These are the things that are worth agreeing to disagree for. These are things worth compromising in some sense. Now, I don't want to say that there aren't scriptures about these issues. And each person should be firmly convinced in their own mind about a whole lot of issues and all of us are growing and learning and we should be pursuing to apply scripture to all of our lives. But not everybody is going to be at the same place you are and not everybody's conscience is going to be at the same place you are. 
So it is so important for Christian unity that you locate your differences with one another in this third area. And as you come together, do not fight, do not quarrel, do not be divisive and destroy the work of God for something that is your preference. That's part of how we live out Christian unity. That's part of our ministry of unity in the body. And as this is why it's so important to grow in your knowledge of the word and in Christian doctrine. Because as you grow in your knowledge of the word, you're going to have more wisdom and understanding about how things should be located in those three things. Essentials, distinctives, and preferences. And you might call them by different labels. But the scripture itself, especially in 1 Corinthians, as we saw in chapter 15, gives us warrant to say there are things that are of first importance and there are things that are not. This is a part of Christian unity and displaying God's spirit. So, continuing on in Psalm 133, verse 3. Going back up to the top. So let's reorient ourselves. Psalm 133, verse 3. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life evermore. I already suggested this at the beginning. That... David was most likely looking out over the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. And he saw how unity in the people of God is a picture of the kingdom of God. And that's what we see here. Unity in the body is a picture of the kingdom of God. It's like the dew of Hermon. So Hermon, Mount Hermon, was the tallest of the mountains in Israel. So the dew on the tallest mountain would have been the heaviest. Now in your mind, picture heavy dew is water in the desert. He's saying that the unity of God's people is water in the desert. It's a precious thing, like the precious oil that went on Aaron's head. It's valuable. It's to be treasured. It's amazing because it's life where there is none. In the desert, water is an amazing and valuable commodity that people are willing to fight over even today. People talk about the future wars that are going to happen are probably going to be over fresh water. Water in the desert is life. Water in the desert is life. It's like the heaviest dew. On the highest mountain, giving life to everything. It's like water which falls on the mountains of Zion. Now last week, if you look up in Psalm 132, what's so important about Zion? From Psalm 2 all the way to here, when you see a reference to Zion, it's a reference to the king Look up in Psalm 132, verse, seven, verse 17. There I will make a horn to sprout for David, 
the horn is a symbol of strength. Where the horn comes up, that's where the mighty king is. So when you see a reference to Zion, that's the city of God's promise where he has said, I will raise up a horn. The Messiah is going to come. This psalm is just bursting with energy, looking forward to God's promised Messiah. It's waiting for him, waiting for the horn of strength to come. God's people are waiting for their deliverer, for their king in the city of Zion. It's the city, verse 3 of Psalm 133, where the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore, of eternal life from God's kingdom. And you can see that David saw this small picture of the kingdom of God and all these things that we have the privilege of knowing more about today. We have the privilege of living after the cross, of living after the Messiah, of understanding the, the height and the depth and the grandness of God's plan to include you and me and his people who will live under the king who God promised would come as the horn who would be raised up on Mount Zion. All that comes from the unity of God's people. And David sees it. And it's wondrous to him. And he says, behold, how good and how pleasant it is. Unity is like water in the desert. It's a picture of hope for the future. In conclusion, I was thinking about what has such power in a small picture. Maybe an engagement. You know, when, when you, my wife, I know most ladies, they get so excited about an engagement story. Because an engagement story is a small picture of expectation about the wedding. And in this is bound up the expectation of that final marriage supper of the Lamb that you and I are invited to. God in his grace invites us to worship him because of what he's done in his, in his son. He invites, invites us to partake of God's unity no matter what we've done. And God wants us to be as gracious as he is to welcome those whom God has welcomed. Because God's welcome to you is extended in Christ. Again, not because of who you are, or what you've done, or what you haven't done, but because of his son, because of the cross, and he welcomes you. God's unity is a picture of the beauty and grace of worshiping God. And it should motivate our hearts to turn to him to turn to each other in unity. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And God, we confess that we need your spirit to empower our lives to love each other. We don't often live out the unity that you desire, but Lord, we pray that you would help us to have wisdom Lord, give us unity in the body for the sake of your gospel. We pray that 
We would be a people set apart among the nations that people look at and behold and see something wondrous. We pray that we would be unique and strange. Lord, help us to love each other, to welcome each other, for your glory, in Jesus' name.